Hello, this is your host, Dr. Casey Bradley, and welcome to Pig Progress's The Real P3 Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the producers around the world. In this episode, we're going to visit with Todd Thurman, a global swine consultant that works with producers all over the world. And we're going to discuss the two main issues he finds with producers wherever he goes, and that is labor and animal health. So stay tuned. Well, good morning, Todd. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. How are you? Good. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling the audience a little bit about your background? Sure, no problem. So I've been in the industry, I guess, officially since I graduated from college back in 1999. Started out uh, directly with Cargill Pork and was there uh, for about seven years. Um, so that's the uh, live production system that Cargill owns. It's now part of the JBS system. Um, and I was there for, like I said, about seven years. I worked for a while in their genetic multiplication system, but spent the majority of my time there working in their commercial sow system. So I was responsible for their commercial sow production in, in Oklahoma and Missouri and part of Arkansas. And so that's where I really, I guess, cut my teeth in the industry. And then I stayed with Cargill, and but moved over to the animal nutrition division. And I was there for about eight years and really kept doing a lot of the same things. I still was very you know production focused, focused on uh, issues around productivity and management. I worked a lot with some of Cargill Animal Nutrition's key accounts on, on issues like that to support their nutrition efforts. And that opportunity led me to relocate to Russia for two years. And we started up a 25,000 South system uh, in Russia. I was like a consulting general manager on that project. And that has gone on to become one of the biggest port production systems um, in Russia. That was their first pig-related project, and, and they've gone on to become one of the top two or three, I think, uh, pork producers in Russia. When I came back from Russia, I guess they, they figured if I went to Russia, I'd go just about anywhere. And so I started doing a lot of international work at that point and uh, working directly with some of Cargill's uh, large uh, strategic accounts on the swine side, and then also doing some training and development with the Cargill teams around the world in improving their capabilities around productivity and management. So I did that for the remainder of my career with Cargill. Then I spent three years with uh, Genesis Genetics uh, based in Canada. It was about 50% international, about 50% domestic uh, here in the U.S. My international work was primarily with large key accounts in China. And then I did some business development uh, work in the Philippines for them as well. Uh, here in the U.S., I was focused on their large uh, strategic accounts here in the U.S. And then about five and a half years ago, I uh, started my own consulting business. And so I tell people I spend a lot of time doing the same things that I, I did before for other people, just doing it for myself now, but working with a lot of the same type of clients, uh, medium to large producers around the world. Um, we're very heavily focused, not necessarily intentionally, uh, a little bit by accident, but we're very heavily focused in Asia. Uh, so about 80% of our business is in uh, Asia, the majority of that China. Uh, but then a significant amount in uh, Southeast Asia as well. But we also have uh, clients here in, in North America. We have clients in Latin America, a few in Europe. And so we get around the world, but uh, we've been very uh, Asia-focused over the last couple of years. So you've worked with pigs all over the world. Yep, uh, just about everywhere. I haven't been to Africa yet, although that may be uh, in my uh, somewhat near future. But that's about the only place I haven't been uh, where they have pigs. And 
about the only place that I've, uh, I've not worked with them. Well, when they ever let us travel to South Africa again, it's on my bucket list to go to. So. Yeah, I definitely am interested in going as well. I have a lot of producers that interact with me in the, the continent of Africa, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, South Africa. So, yeah. So this uh, podcast is focused around producers and different challenges and problems we face and how we can come up with our own solutions. What is the most common problem have you found working with producers all over the world? Well, I, I think we tend to focus on the differences, you know, so we talk a lot about the differences. So what's different in China compared to the U.S. or what's different in Brazil compared to Europe? And, and th- those are all obviously very interesting conversations. And there are some very significant differences in the way we raise pigs in different parts of the world. But I think my experience has been very common among people that have worked and done a lot of work internationally, that there's a lot more we have in common than there are differences. And, and really, as I think about it, the two big issues that I see, you know, that I would expect to see when I'm interacting with a client, whether it's in Vietnam or China or Brazil or here in North America, the, there's two issues that really come to the, to the top almost immediately, and that's labor and animal health. And so, so many of our challenges in our pork systems, no matter where we're at in the world, revolve around one of those two issues in some one, one way or another. And so how do you help producers with those two problems, challenges? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of different things. I think there's a lot of misconceptions around labor, especially in developing countries. I think uh, a lot of times when I talk about labor issues in China, people in the U.S. are surprised to hear, you know, that, that producers in China have labor problems. Well, you know, it's a huge population you know, low labor costs. So, you, you know, there should be a plentiful amount of labor and, and it should be relatively inexpensive, right? And I tell them, you know, that that's, you know, somewhat true. It certainly was more true 10 years ago than it is today. But one of the things I don't think a lot of people think about is that we've seen a very strong trend towards increasing labor challenges in the agriculture industry in general in China and in pork production specifically. So, you know, what we've seen there in China is a major shift towards urbanization. Okay? So you've got people that are leaving these rural areas and moving to the cities, primarily to the big cities. So the big cities are getting bigger. The medium-sized cities are getting huge. And when we talk about medium-sized cities in, in China, we're talking about cities that are the size of New York City. So they're already big to begin with. Um, and so that shift has been a real problem for businesses in agriculture that you know tend to be in rural areas, obviously. And we don't have a lot of opportunities to just relocate those businesses to, to urban areas, right? And so that's been a been a big challenge. And then I always encourage people to look at the increase in the wages in China. And it's been remarkable. I mean, we're seeing some, you know, increased wages here in the U.S. in response to some of the challenges around the, the COVID pandemic. But this is an ongoing challenge that the industry in China has been dealing with for quite some time. And it's certainly not specific necessarily to the to the agriculture industry, but the agriculture industry in no way is is immune to that. So we're seeing some pretty dramatic increases in the cost of labor in China. And so, uh, you know, China is no longer a cheap labor destination, right? There are still some places around the world that have you know relatively cheap labor. Now, I would argue that cheap labor is is sort of a myth, right? But it's it's certainly not the case in in China. Uh, we're seeing you know major challenges. And so those Chinese producers are dealing with a lot of the same challenges that we're dealing with, a shrinking pool of potential talent 
and higher costs to uh, attract that talent and retain that talent. So you think it's a shift in lifestyle? Because I mentioned that here, even in the U.S., if we look at that, that shift of more urban lifestyle, my husband and I, we choose to live in a suburb or city, whatever we want to call it here, because I need access to an airport. I want good schools for my son. I need special resources for my son. And so we have not moved back into rural America per se, but do you think is that some of the same challenges China's facing as well? Yeah, I think a lot of what you see in China is really just sort of a an exacerbated condition of, of what you see in other places, right? Mm-hmm. Everything that happens in China is, is, is a lot of those are the same trends that we're seeing elsewhere. They're just bigger and faster because of the Chinese structure and because of the size of their population. And so, yeah, I definitely see, you know, what we're seeing in China is definitely being mirrored here and really almost everywhere else that I work. I mean, I can't think of a, a place that I've done any business where that's not true. It's more true in some places. It's a bigger concern in some places than other. But that trend is definitely consistent across all the places that we do business. Those rural areas are, are becoming more and more of a challenge to to uh, have a decent-sized pool of, of talent, pool of people to draw upon. And it goes hand-in-hand. Hand. We're worried about health, so we tend to want to build some of these facilities. And when I hear in China, they build them mega operations in the middle of nowhere to keep them isolated on purpose, but then they don't have labor. So very similar to where we put our sows in the U.S. to keep them healthy is not in population centers. Yeah, and you know, I mentioned those two issues, labor and animal health, and, and they're, they're definitely related a lot of and what you mentioned is a perfect example. So we have a push and pull situation where from an animal health standpoint, we want the animals to be as isolated as possible. But the further we get away from those population centers, the more challenges we have around labor. And so it's definitely, a, you know, one of the consummate challenges, I think, of our for our industry over the, you know, it has been over the last you know decade or so and will continue to be even a bigger challenge. As from 2022, Pick Progress is proud to be teaming up with the Real P3 podcast. Professionals from around the globe already knew how to find Pick Progress as a reliable source of global and exclusive pig information through our website, newsletter, magazine, social media, and webinars. And now, in its 38th year of existence, there is no escaping. Your favorite pig media is prominently present in audio form as well. Find out more to access all podcast episodes and register for a free newsletter to www.pigprogress.net. So I've had a lot of conversations around labor and coming up with creative strategies of how to solve it. Do you have any suggestions for producers how to fix their labor issues? I mean, what's needed in our industry? To some degree, I think we need a shift in perspective. I think we really need to start looking at labor as a valuable resource and and how to manage that resource differently. I think a lot of managers at the, at the, you know, middle management level and even at the senior level, just think of labor as just kind of a headache and it's kind of a challenge. But I think this is something we really need to embrace because I think it's going to be one of the key factors in success in our industry. Those companies that do a good job of managing that, those human resources are going to be the ones that put themselves in a position to gain market share, to increase profitability, to be competitive. You know, as I look around at the, the clients that I work with, the ones that are most well-prepared for the future are the ones that really have focused and do a good job 
on people, on the people side of their business. And a lot of that can get cliched and they're in a big hurry. But I think, you know, another thing that I talk a lot about with people is sitting down and actually having conversations with your workers, right? At all levels of the, of the company, you know, these surveys and, and, you know, getting feedback in a, in a structured way is certainly useful, but there's no substitute for sitting down and actually having conversations with people and, and understanding how work fits into their life and what, what things are valuable to them. You know, one of the things we're starting to see in a lot of the feedback is, is flexibility is extremely important. So that's one of those areas where, to me, we have an advantage. We like to talk about our disadvantages. Oh, we're in rural areas. Oh, we have, you know, an environment that's not always, you know, as pleasant as sitting in a, in a climate-controlled office. And we, so we talk about a lot of those things. And those challenges are real. But we also have some advantages. And one of those is flexibility. You know, ours is a 24, we talk about it all the time. Ours is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week business, right? Sales don't care whether it's Christmas Day or 3 o'clock in the morning. When, when those animals have needs, we have to be there to fulfill those. But that also offers a tremendous amount of flexibility. And so breaking out of this mentality that everybody has to get to the farm at 6 o'clock in the morning and leave at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I mean, that's a, that's a real opportunity. You're you know, speaking, you my tap- <laughs> speaking my <laughs> well, language. Speaking my language, Todd. Well, and, and I keep I keep thinking, you know, when we talk about this flexibility, so much of these challenges revolve around family obligations, right? And so um, there's a huge amount of value and an opportunity for a working parent to be able to take their kid to school, go to work, and then pick their kid up from school. And maybe they work every other weekend. You know, some of those opportunities to be able to have a decent paying job that allowed them to do that you know, and also had benefits. I mean, that's a huge pool of potential talent to draw on. And I just don't see enough companies, you know, opening their minds to, you know, non-traditional uh, working schedules. And that, to me, that's just a, an, an obvious opportunity. I mean, there is no reason why we can't develop workflows in a farm that, you know, allow somebody to come in at noon and leave at, you know, 7 p.m. or, or whatever the, the schedule looks like. We can, we can be flexible and we need to take advantage of, of that because that's a big advantage that we have that, that some of our competition for labor doesn't. Yeah. And if you're listening after teaching my class at seven 30 this semester, everyone, the young people do not like to get out of bed before 10. So maybe instead of a six to two schedule, <laughs> let's start at 10 o'clock for the younger people. Yep. That's, that, that's definitely a trend that I see, not just here actually, but the uh, overseas, we see that, that trend as well uh, towards younger people wanting to, Wanting to work more flexible hours, wanting to work less traditional hours, and definitely the value of starting later in the day is definitely there. So we see that definitely in, in other parts of the world as well. Well, in other industries, my husband talks about his scheduling. Um, he loves his shift. He works 12-hour shifts, and he gets every other weekend off, and he works nights, so it works with our schedule. But he said a lot of the younger people really like that schedule, the old traditional. They had three shifts. And they like that afternoon shift. So they come in and around, I think, so six to two and then like two to 10, something like that. A lot of people like that two to 10 hours and that works with their schedules for some reason. And where I, that wouldn't work for me, for instance. And so, you know, there's a lot going into thinking about a lot of competition in different industries, but I think we can learn from them too on those different shifts. So well, and I think that's been a big discussion, too, that I've had with clients in, in China is we're competing for a different type of, of worker in a lot of ways. And so we're competing with as more and more people are educated 
um, and they have more and more opportunities, you know, that's part of what's driving that shift uh, towards urbanization, but it's also creating a different type of worker that we're going after. So a different kind of skill set, a different kind of background. And that's having us competing with other businesses that we may not have normally considered, you know, to be competing with. And you're competing with, you know, you're competing with that best job in town. And a lot of times in China, we talk about, you know, you're really competing with those companies that are serving, you know, the farms, right? You're competing with those pharmaceutical companies and those feed companies that can offer a more, you know, traditional work environment um, that's more appealing to some of those guys. And so, you know, you've really got to figure out how to compete with that. And that can be a challenge. With some of your producers, do you have any good examples of some of them doing things right for labor? You know, I think probably one of the more radical ones is I worked with a producer in the Philippines and they were very focused on helping their employees develop their careers. And they took it really to, in some ways to an extreme. And one of the things that they did was they uh, facilitated their employees' opportunities to immigrate to Canada. Right. And so that might seem like a, a really kind of a dumb move, right? You know, why would you, you know, bring employees in, train them, develop them, and then help them, you know, not only just leave the company, but actually leave the country. But that was a huge value for a lot of Filipinos. They want that opportunity. And because they were able to help facilitate that for some of those employees, they were able to attract the cream of the crop. Okay. And then they got a really good reputation. Everybody wanted to come work for them. And so it was really about a sort of an extreme version of helping develop your, develop your employees, not just in, within your organization, but really developing their career opportunities, whether those opportunities were within your organization or outside of your organization. And so not only have they, you know, been able to access, albeit for a relatively shorter period of of time, they've been able to access the best talent that was available in the industry. And they've been able to develop a reputation that allows them to continue to repeat that. And so I think that's a that's a good example. And I've seen some other, maybe less radical examples uh, like that, but I think that's a big part of it. You bring up a really good point because I'm trying to create some internships, externship programs. And I've been talking to Dr. Crystal Levesque, and she's trying to do the same for her students at South Dakota State. And as a working with students, so I manage students for eight years, I would rather take six months to a year of having the cream of the crop student versus a warm body. And I hear all these stories. I just heard one this week about warm body syndrome and why do we tolerate that just to have a warm body? I would rather know. And if you can plan that transitionary time, that I'm only going to have the best for six months or a year. I think you can get a lot accomplished, but like you said, because if you have that program, that's a healthy transition in my mind versus I I hire a warm body just to fill a spot. And I hated that as a manager, you know, I'd have constant turnover every 30 days and you lose a lot, but imagine like in your mind, and I'm looking here in North America or more developed maybe countries as well, where it's even, you know, a higher education, can we get some really top talent in? work six to 12 months, we know that they're going to leave, but we keep that pool coming. And I think that's a great example of how it's functioning really well. Yeah, I think that's another you know, another example of that creativity that I talked about. We just really got to break out of these, these paradigms that we've developed for ourselves and really start thinking about things differently. You know, I think you and I have talked a little bit in the past about 
you know, the untapped resource of the high school graduate, right? Mm-hmm. Can we get in there and get to them earlier in between? You know, there's this increased interest in taking a gap year, or taking some time off to try to figure out what you want to do. You know, if we could tap into that, and that's not just, you know, you know, kids that are lost and don't know what to do with their lives. You know, those are some really talented kids that are wanting to take that opportunity. You know, if we can get in there between high school and and whatever they decide to do in terms of higher education, you know, that's a that's an untapped resource in a lot of ways. And so I think there's a lot of creative ways that we could tap into that. And you're seeing some of the more progressive companies doing that, but I, I think we need to see a lot more of that. And I think the pork industries, the pork consoles need to get behind a program like that. So I just, um, unfortunately, I couldn't go live or interact, but in Oklahoma Pork Producers Council and, and doing their industry outreach program with college students. And imagine if we went to high school and did that. I don't think enough of us is talking to the right students in high school to understand the careers. And then, you know, working with these students I have the semester, money is a, a massive concern for a lot of these students. And we look at poverty concerns and, and changing that. I think we could recruit a lot of talent if, like you said, we help them develop their career and we're waiting too long to find those people. Well, I I agree. And I I think we can tap in, you know, one of the concerns that I've had for our industry is the, the increasing disconnect between our corporate pork production industry and that FFA 4H resource. Mm -hmm. And there's some, there's some good reasons for that. I mean, there's some, there's some, you know, challenges with that, but, I mean, these are, you know, ready-made, you know, kids that, you know, obviously are interested in working with animals, uh, working with pigs specifically in a lot of cases. I mean, that's just a huge untapped resource. And we've got to strengthen those connections or re-strengthen those connections and reestablish those. And and I think getting back even further, you know, not just in, in high school, but getting back into elementary school and start, you know, having, you know, kids think about this. I mean, I was involved in Ag in the Classroom you know, 20 years ago, or I'd go speak to second and third graders. And, mm-hmm. and I've even had some of those, those kids as older kids come back and say, hey, I remember when you came and, you know, talked to my class when I was a third grader. And, you know, I mean, we really just need to do a better job of, of building those connections early. And I think that'll become an increasingly big concern as we start to, uh, you know, try to access that high school talent, like we talked about. Undefinitely. And, I had an example this year, the kid was all set to go wanting to go to vet school. And I changed his mind because he said he wants to find alternatives to antibiotics. And he's like, well, Dr. Bradley, that's what she does. I'm going to you know, follow her path. And I don't think we get enough students to tell them about all the different jobs and opportunities there are in agriculture. I remember when I was in school, I thought the only way I could work with animals and I wanted to go to college was to be a veterinarian. And I got into college and I'm like, what? I can go to grad school. They're still going to call me a doctor. Um, you're going to pay me to go to grad school and I'm not going to have to pay tuition. I'm like, I'm thinking that's the way I need to go. So, yep. and here I am 20 years later. So, well, you know, and I, I think, you know, and you know, I, you know, I've talked a little bit about this. There's, there's a big disconnect with what's going on at our universities and the needs that we have. I mean, I talked to a, a high level recruiter for uh, one of the big producers here in the U.S. just a few weeks ago. And, you know, one of the things that she talked about was that disconnect with what jobs kids are coming out of college looking for and what jobs they have available, right? What they're, what they're looking for. We've got to, we've got to do a better job of preparing our students. And, and I've been telling people that higher education is a, is a very ingrained 
slow to change industry, right? And that I don't think that we can reasonably expect for higher education to make the adjustments fast enough to meet our needs. And so I've been out there telling our industry, if you're a big company, our industry, you need to be thinking about how to develop and train those employees internally. And if you're a small or medium-sized company in our industry, you need to figure out how to go poach those kids that are uh, trained and developed by the bigger companies. Because I think we can we can no longer continue to rely on a higher education system to provide the type of talent we need to keep our businesses operational. And you think that's a global problem from academia? Because as you learn, I mean, academic situations are different in different countries. And at least China is an example. You take a test and they tell you where you can go to college for. So like, I've had several graduate students that come study in the U.S. that I've met in my career because when they tested in China, they couldn't go. They wanted to go biology and animal science gets the lower test scores, I guess. So how does that work in those types of countries where your career is based on a test score? Yeah, I think there's plenty of challenges with higher education everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. I think those challenges are different in China. I think uh, what do we see a lot in China is we see very educated kids that know, you know, a lot of theory, but they have no practical skill. And so you have, you know, a graduate of a PhD nutrition program that, that understands all of the theoretical components. I mean, they're very highly educated, but they have zero practical application skills. And so you, you gotta, you've got to take that student and, and really, you know, and they've already gone to school and they're ready to put their degree to work. And you really got to put them in almost a remedial program to get them up to speed so they actually have some skills that are really useful to your business. Same way with veterinarians. You know, we've got these, I mean, I deal with these, these students that are very interested in learning, but they graduated as a veterinarian. And, and the, the veterinarian program is different in China and a lot of other parts of the world than it is here. Our system is actually fairly unique. But, you know, I get these veterinarians in China that don't know how to bleed a, bleed a pig, you know. I mean, they don't know how to do really basic things, you know, hands-on things. So, you know, I, I think China in a lot of ways is better than we are in terms of teaching uh, students the basics. You know, they tend to have better scores in, in, you know, basics like math and reading and things like that, foreign language even. But in terms of teaching them practical skills, they don't do a very good job. I would say that mimics a lot of the U.S. universities. There's some programs that do a better job of getting their students that practical experience. And then you have others who take it away and they can just say, you know, at the University of Arkansas, I can use my example. My last semester, I was every year I, I counted on intro to animal science labs to recruit my students to come work for me because I got them exposed. I gave them that hands on experience they like hands-on experience, by the way, for listening teachers, professors. That's essential. It doesn't matter if you're teaching non-science majors, animal science majors, hands-on application is how kids learn today. I've learned that this semester. But I could recruit them in my last semester because of liability or number of students or whatever, they weren't allowed to come out. I had to show it on video. Lost in translation. Lost opportunity. Well, I'm, you know, I'm a perfect example of that, to be honest. I mean, I grew up in the Texas panhandle. I grew up around the beef industry. And I ended up in the pork industry sort of by accident. I always assumed I would go into, into beef production. I ended up in the pork industry uh, partly because there were some really interesting things going on in, at the time 
in the areas that I was uh, particularly interested in. But there's there's two main reasons that I ended up in the pork industry. And a big one is I ended up getting a job at the research farm as an undergraduate mm-hmm. at, at uh, Texas Tech. And that experience not only, you know, kind of galvanized my interest in the pork industry, it gave me some real practical skills, you know. And so I started at Cargill and I was in a what was supposed to have been a one to two year training program. I was out in six months taking a real job. It wasn't because I was smarter than everybody else. It's because I had practical experience. I had actually managed a farm. I had, you know, I had hands on, you know, we did a lot of research, but we were also a, a working, you know, production system as well. And so that hands-on experience was extremely valuable. I mean, I look back on my career and I'm a huge supporter. I, I judged livestock in junior college and I really thought about doing that. And uh, when I went to Texas Tech and ended up making the decision to, to work at the research farm instead. And in hindsight, as supportive as, as I am of, of judging programs, and I, I think that really helps develop some very valuable skills in kids. Mm-hmm. It was a great decision for me because I got hands-on experience that really allowed me to to accelerate my career quickly. I love that. I'm going to switch a little, little bit on the gear research farm. And I get a lot of times people listen to me and talk about me. They look, you know, they've looked at my resume and stuff. He says, you really love research. And, and I said, well, I love to have data to make decisions. Research is a tool. It's, and I found it interesting working with a producer on a, a sour research trial. And, and this, this made my whole month, my year, I guess, to say, because we put some different measurements into research, like the style caliber, body condition, we're looking at shoulder sores, things like that. He said just by looking at it, he fixed his problem. Why do you think producers are so anti-research when they hear that term? It's just, a, to me, a tool to learn, but it's also a tool to recruit and develop and that's why this producer that I'm working with today wanted to do research because they've had a very stable long-term staff and they wanted to give them some career development. So some extra skills that you talk about. So why are we anti-research and using that as a tool for recruitment and bringing in students and, and younger talent? Yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of share your frustration. And I think a lot of it revolves around this shift towards specialization. And, and wanting to just be uber focused on what our core business is. And, and I think a lot of managers see research as potentially valuable, but also as a potential distraction. And I think we've got to, we've got to shift away from that, that sort of thinking, because I think the added benefit, the added insight that it gives you into your, into your business is, is well worth that whatever level of distraction there that exists there. So I think that's not an, an illegitimate concern. I just don't think the risk reward you know, balance there is, it makes it a, a legitimate uh, excuse to avoid research. I, I think another one is, is cost. Um, it can seem, you know, cost prohibitive. Now there's ways you can do, you know, good quality research without having to invest in you know, really expensive facilities and things like that. Uh, but it is a it is a, not an inexpensive endeavor. Again, I would argue that the return on investment is pretty good, especially if you do a good job of it. And then I, I think maybe, you know, one of the other concerns is that sometimes research, especially when it's done well, doesn't always give you the answer right away, right? It's a long-term investment. And, and we tend to be short-term focused. And how do we get a return on our investment in the short term? And sometimes you're going to do a research project and you're not going to get the results you expected. And you're going to find out that, 
you know, nothing happened, you know, and that's valuable information too, but it's, it's hard to put it, it's hard to attach a value to that. And so I think we have to get better about how we think about attaching a value to research and being able to communicate that, you know, that return on investment a little bit differently than we would a traditional, you know, return on investment for a production. Yeah. And I get frustrated as well on research and mindset. We think about change and bio, you know, health issues, people issues and a, if you're not measuring it, you can't change it. If we have a sow body condition issue, we, you know, if we're not measuring that, we can't fix it. Let's change gears here a little bit now and let's talk about health. We talked about health. What are we doing wrong to maintain good health in our systems? You know, I think there's there's a lot of, of different things going on uh, there. And I think uh, I tend to focus a lot on biosecurity. And I really think it's something that a lot of times producers are getting sick and tired of hearing about. But it remains our most valuable tool to protecting ourselves from disease. There's a lot of opportunities to, to do some things differently. There's a lot of uh, creative strategies out there. But I, I get back and I'm thinking, what is the one thing that you could do that would probably have the best return on investment in terms of managing health? And I think it's about security. And, and I think that applies, you know, really around the world. And it's certainly a bigger opportunity in some places than others. It remains a huge opportunity in China. Uh, but it's still a big opportunity here. You know, I run into some real, you know, basic opportunities. You know, a perfect example here in North America is very few farms have a perimeter fence, right? A perimeter fence is a pretty good investment. It's very common for, for other reasons. It's very common in other parts of the world. I mean, no one could imagine having a farm without a perimeter fence in China. Nobody could imagine having a farm without a perimeter fence in, in Russia. Uh, but we have, you know, situations here where it's relatively uncommon to see a perimeter fence. You know, relatively minor investment, you know, that to me is, is about, is an indication that we haven't completely adopted that you know, culture of biosecurity and what biosecurity is going to look like in the future. And so that's just something I pound on day in and day out. And, and I know producers get sick and tired of, of hearing me talk about it, but I just, I point back to some of my clients in China that I've been, was yelling about prior to August, 2018. And I was talking all the time about biosecurity. And in 2019, I got a lot of phone calls for people saying, Hey, you know, you came and talked to us about biosecurity a couple of years ago. Uh, you want to come back and give us that talk again? Cause all of a sudden we're a lot more interested in biosecurity <laughs> than we were a couple of years ago. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, but that's a, that's a huge part for me. And so that's, that's a lot where a lot of my focus uh, lies is, is really trying to not just strengthen those biosecurity systems, but really strengthen that culture of biosecurity. And how do you balance the people in biosecurity? Because you know, if you do it right, it's very difficult and you have to have that mindset every day going to work. Oh, I can't step over that line. And like, that's me. Any farm I go into, I live biosecurity and trying to figure out in different systems. What's my, what's my role in biosecurity here? And, and some systems do it really great. And I work with some producers who might as well not have any biosecurity because it's but they seem to get by. <laughs> yeah, they're lucky so far. But well, there, there's a there's a lot of discussion I think around biosecurity about processes and procedures, mm -hmm. and those are extremely important. I mean, a lot of my a lot of the work that I do with producers is helping them develop those processes and procedures, and then a lot of it is about 
you know, physical investments, whether you're going to invest in a, you know, shower in, shower out facility, or whether you're going to invest in some sort of process to disinfect incoming tools or, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot of discussion about that. There's very little discussion about the people aspect of it. And mm-hmm. so, and that's where most of the, the opportunities are. You know, I've seen, and China's a perfect example, I've seen a lot of significant improvements in processes and procedures. The percentages of farms that I work with in China now that have at least have a standard, a set of standard operating procedures for biosecurity is dramatically higher than it was before the ASF outbreak. They're willing to invest in sometimes extreme, make extreme investments now in physical investments, whether that's, you know, truck wash uh, facilities or, or, you know, things like that. That's much, much, much more common uh, in China now than it was a few years ago. The people aspect of it, in a lot of ways, in some places it's changed, in other places it hasn't changed at all. And that's what I've been trying to to reinforce with people. And until you create that culture of biosecurity, then you can make all the investments in the world in facilities and equipment and even processes and procedures. But if they're not executed effectively, none of that really matters. Very good points. Not to cut this conversation short, but... Before we go, I always give my guests an opportunity to turn the table. And if you had any questions or last minute thoughts, I'm just curious. Yeah. So, you know, I I really just think that we're, it really feels like and that we're sort of at a crossroads as an industry. And I think the industry 10 years from now, I think it's going to be a lot different than it is today. And I think back over my career, and maybe I've just gotten to the age where you kind of start being a little reflective and you start thinking about how things, how much things have changed since, since I've been in the industry and it's a lot, but I would be willing to bet in the 25 years that I've been in the industry, there will be more changes in the next 10 years than there was in the 25 previous, possibly in the next five. And so I think the speed at which things are changing is really going to define whether people are going to be successful or not. Um, your ability to adapt and change to different circumstances, I think it's going to increasingly be a challenge. And so as I'm working with my clients, that's what I'm really trying to, at a real basic level, I'm trying to improve their ability to adjust and adapt to circumstances and to do that quickly and seamlessly without losing focus on other things that are important. And so I, I you know, I call it agility because that's what resonates with me, but I think our businesses, um, have got to become much more agile. So those are a lot of the things that I'm thinking about. Some of the things we talked about on biosecurity, human resources, you know, animal health management, a lot of those revolve around being more adaptable, being more agile, being able to shift on the fly and make adjustments. And that's something that I think traditionally our industry has not been very good at. And it's something that we're going to have to get much, much better at. And, and ultimately, I think that is going to be the defining factor in who is uh, successful in this new industry and who's not. No, it touches on the points. And I've said this before is the future is the right to farm. And when we think of the right to farm resources, and you said we people are very valuable resources that we've ignored probably for centuries in agriculture. Um, we just took it for granted. And I think when I said it before, you know, the right to farm is going to be the success of how we create the culture and attract the right people into our systems to keep them going. So thank you, Todd. I really enjoyed it. Great insights. I hopefully we can catch up again soon and stay in touch, but appreciate your time today. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I'm not sure about you, but I really enjoyed hearing the perspectives of Todd. I love hearing what other producers are facing around the world, and it's great to have those insights and thoughts. I hope he sparked some ideas for you to implement in your operations. So until next time.